Start by forgetting the tinsel, the strings of lights, the candles, the carols, the shepherds and the angels. If you want to understand Christmas, you have to start a long way from Bethlehem. You have to start with disaster, with catastrophe, with apocalypse, with the place where the whole world bends and bends and then just breaks. The Bible is the world's best-selling book of all time, certainly in the Western world, that's no surprise. But it was also the world's best-selling book in 2012, and 2013, and 2014, and 2015, and 2016. You get the idea. The Bible is the most influential book in human history, and it's also one of the most misunderstood. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. Today we're kicking off a four-part series on understanding Christmas, where we'll look at the lead-up to the big day itself, the four-week season of Advent, and then of course Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And since Advent is the beginning of the Christian year, some introductions or reintroductions are in order. You can find out more about me, about the team, about the project, about where the name Strange New World comes from, all that good stuff, over at saltproject.org. But here's the quick version. My name is Matt, and I've spent most of my career as a professor, teaching and writing about the Bible and theology more generally. My wife and I now run a production and animation company called Salt Project, and all the way along, like a golden thread, has been the Bible itself. For me, the Bible is just the most interesting thing in the world. And I mean that literally. I actually think there's an argument to be made for that outlandish claim, whether or not you're religious. Here's the argument. It goes something like this. There are so many things that are interesting in the universe. Supernovas, dark matter, black holes, 100 billion galaxies and more. But I think we'd have to say, if we had to choose one, that the most interesting place in the universe is our little blue and green planet Earth. Not only because it's our home, and home is very interesting, but because it's the only place we know of where there's life and life is astounding. So I think it's safe to say that Earth is the most interesting place and life is the most interesting thing on Earth. So what's the most interesting form of life? Again, so many fascinating options. And again, I think at the end of the day, we'd have to choose humanity. And not only because we are human and we want to understand ourselves and each other, but for two other reasons too. First, humanity is amazing. We are clever, we are beautiful, we are inspiring at our best. We've come up with these astonishing forms of collaboration that give rise to cities and symphonies and smartphones and modern medicine and all the rest. And second, humanity is awful. We are essentially an invasive species and we've overrun the place. This is now the Anthropocene, the geological epoch named for us because we are so fundamentally changing the planet for good and in many ways for ill, heating it up, spoiling ecosystems, and leading to extinctions on a scale not seen for millions of years. 
Humanity is the most interesting form of life, both because we're amazing and because we are so awful. And we've got to understand what we're doing and how we're changing the place we call home. So the most interesting place in the universe is Earth. The most interesting thing on Earth is life. The most interesting form of life is humanity. What's the most interesting thing about humanity? It would have to be something to do with language, because that's been part of the secret sauce, again, for both good and for ill, and what we've been able to do. And also because our lives are just fundamentally built and experienced and lived out through language, through stories and songs and poetry and wisdom. Now, Homo sapiens has been around for something like 200,000 years, give or take. And for the last several thousand, we have invented some pretty amazing ways to conserve those stories and songs and poetry through different forms of writing and collecting these writings in libraries. The stuff that seemed most illuminating, most useful, most interesting. We can imagine ourselves as swashbuckling archaeologists Indiana Jones breaking into the secret chamber, discovering an ancient library. And you know, we've spent our lives in swashbuckling archaeology school, studying the languages so that we can read these ancient treasures. And as we move aside the stone and we discover the undiscovered chamber, the shaft of light comes in, we see the tablets and the scrolls there waiting to be read, and we just think, this is the most interesting place in the world. You know, these are the things that our ancestors passed on from generation to generation because they seem to them so intriguing, so insightful, so helpful, like a collection of recipes for the most delicious meals you've ever tasted. And that's what the Bible is. It's that library that's been passed down for thousands of years. And on top of that, it's the only such library that's been bound in a single volume and sent around the world, and it's become this incredibly influential text. The most influential text in human history for good and for ill. And so if these ancient libraries are the most interesting thing about humanity, then the Bible, because of its wide and deep influence, is the most interesting of those libraries. It has shaped Western culture fundamentally, but also non-Western cultures and subcultures. It has shaped and influenced languages. It has shaped and influenced moral and political systems. It has shaped and influenced whole traditions of literature. You know, to be an educated person in the 21st century, in the West, but really anywhere, would seem to require fluency and familiarity with this particular best-selling, influential, for good and for ill, exalted, criticized, ancient library. The Bible is the most interesting thing in the world. And as it turns out, it's also one of the most misunderstood. You might think that the ubiquity and the influence of the Bible would lead it to be more understood than other books, but the opposite is true. On the one hand, it's an ancient library, so it's a difficult book to understand. But more importantly, precisely because the Bible is so influential and prestigious, everyone is trying to pull and distort and recruit the Bible to their cause, to their project. Because if they can say, look, the Bible says it, 
then that's going to give their agenda some luster, some credibility, some force that it wouldn't otherwise have. And so you end up with this cloud of misinformation around the Bible itself. You know, you can't even get into the library because it's just surrounded by people saying, hey, let me tell you what's in there. Let me tell you what it means. And it turns out what it actually means is pretty challenging and countercultural to the status quo, both yesterday and today. And that just raises the stakes even more. The resources of the status quo are invested in getting more and more lobbyists out there surrounding the library trying to inoculate you from those countercultural challenging messages and trying to persuade you that lo and behold, the Bible actually does support the status quo. And so what you end up with is a book that is the most influential in human history and also the most misunderstood. And that's why we're here. This podcast is your library card, and it's your ticket to the tour, a tour of the most influential, misunderstood book in history. We'll begin in the 1950s. A wealthy heiress in Boston is worried about nuclear war, and so she buys close to a thousand acres in the New Hampshire wilderness mostly mountains and also a good-sized lake, all undeveloped, the idea being that in case of war, she and her family could retreat to this land, like a kind of sanctuary from nuclear apocalypse. And since the war never came, when she died, she donated the land to an environmental organization who turned it into a wildlife preserve, a different kind of sanctuary. And now, today, it's the most beautiful, most peaceful place I know. My kids are growing up, hiking there every summer and swimming there. I remember when they were little, sitting between my knees in a kayak, listening to the family of loons that would return to the lake every summer. For me, it's the most sacred place in the world. So let's start there, in the most sacred place, wherever that is for you. Maybe it's your home, one of the places you've lived. Maybe it's a city park, or a national park, or a street corner, or a restaurant, or a bend in a river, or a strip of beach, or a county fair, or someplace just far away from everyone and everything. Maybe it's a church, or a synagogue, or a temple. Maybe it's a cathedral made of redwoods, or a monastery made of light. The axis mundi, the pivot point around which the whole wide world revolves. Start there, wherever that is for you. Picture it. Go there in your mind. And then, all at once, imagine it gone. Not just vanished, but intentionally destroyed. Imagine someone meaning to do you harm and lighting a match and burning it all down. Your home, or the woods, or the nest of the family of loons, The water poisoned, the walls reduced to rubble, it's all gone. Violated with malice and cruelty and casual indifference. Imagine trying to make sense of that. The center of the world, the center of your world, defiled, dishonored, ruined. Now hold there, stay there if you can, that place of apocalypse of desolation. The New Testament Gospels were written 
from that place, that emotional place, that historical place. About 40 years after Jesus' death, a revolutionary Jewish movement rose up against the Roman imperial occupation, and the empire came down hard. They vanquished the rebellion, and they stormed the temple, and they desecrated its grounds, and they reduced it to rubble. Mark's world was shattered and shaken to its core. This is the place, these are the depths, from which Mark proclaims his good news. And the other Gospel writers, Luke and Matthew and eventually John, followed in his footsteps among those same smoldering ruins, that same landscape of desolation. In the ancient world, when death-dealing forces seemed to have the upper hand, one response was a kind of revolutionary poetry, envisioning a daring, dramatic rescue. These visions were often called apocalyptic, from a Greek word for uncovering or revealing. God pulls aside the veil, revealing the hidden rescue to come. In essence, these are extravagant, evocative visions of hope when all hope seems lost. The Bible is full of these kinds of visions. The books of Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Revelation are prime examples. Graphic rescue after graphic rescue, vision after vision. And in this week's passage from Luke, Jesus picks up this mantle. For Luke, the most sacred place, the center of the world, has been destroyed, but hope is not lost. Luke sets the scene. Jesus is teaching in the temple by day and by night sleeping on the Mount of Olives, directly across from the temple. This is Jesus' final teaching before the Passion overtakes him, a kind of farewell discourse. And it's also sometimes called an apocalypse, Jesus' vision of what's hidden and what will be revealed. The temple will be destroyed and desecrated, he says. A time of great suffering will follow, but then, and here Jesus clearly intentionally echoes the ancient voices of Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Amos, new signs will appear, and the child of humanity will arrive and make everything right. But since we don't know exactly when the child of humanity will come, we'll have to stay mindful and alert, so we'll be ready. Be on guard, Jesus says. That's the upshot of Jesus' teaching here. Be ready, because despite how things might seem, God is on the move. Reading this apocalyptic vision during the season of Advent, we may well think of Mary's Magnificat, her song responding to the angel Gabriel's astonishing news, In its own way, that song is a hymn of praise for apocalypse, for revealing how God is turning everything upside down, lifting up the lowly and bringing the mighty down from their thrones. It may well seem by all appearances that the world has gone to hell, that the Roman armies have put down the rebellion and stormed the temple and broken the sacred heart of the world. And they have. Those losses are real. But there's something else there, here, 
here amidst the rubble and the ashes, the shadows and the sorrow. Right here in the midst of loss is where the angels arrive singing their good news of great joy for all people that, despite appearances, God is on the way, turning the world around, and that the Axis Mundi, the sacred center of the world, will be restored. That is one central message of Christmas. It begins in the shadows of hopelessness, and there it lights a candle of hope, for God is on the way. It begins in the rubble of desecration, and there it picks up a stone and rebuilds, for God is on the way. It begins in the life of an ordinary, lowly young woman, in the middle of nowhere, in occupied territory under the thumb of an empire, who raises her voice to sing that God is on the way. That's where Christmas begins, not with the tinsel and the lights and the presents and the feasting. Christmas begins in the dark, in the shadows, in the rubble, in the ashes. Because in those places, and really only in those places, can we hear the good news of the gospel. The good news of apocalypse, of hope when all hope seems lost. That's where Christmas begins. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton, music by Pablo J. Garman. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find us. And if you'd like to drop us a line, feel free at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.